Hey, Cracked fans. If you're a listener of this podcast, I imagine you feel fairly similar to how I do about the latest clothing options made available across the tennis market. Now, while I won't call out any brand in particular, I will say this. Given the exorbitant nature of the latest designs, feels like you better be pretty freaking good at tennis if you want to wear that sort of clothing on the court. Now, thankfully, we here at Crack Rackets are now able to provide a far more suitable, far more comfortable, and I'm going to be honest, far more stylish option for all of our Crack Rackets fans, courtesy of our friends over at Lucky Racket. Lucky Racket uses some of the best fitting and feeling tees in the world. Their shirts are combed, ring-spun, heirloom cotton, and tri-blend Bella and Canvas. I don't even know what that means, but that sounds spectacular. So, how can you get yourself some Lucky Racket gear? It's simple. Just go to their website, luckyracket.com, that's L-U-C-K-Y-R-A-C-K-E-T.com, and use our promo code CRACK15. If you do, you'll get 15% off all of your purchases. That means 15% off the shirts, 15% off all of the incredible swag offered by our friends. Again, that's luckyracket.com. The promo code is CRACK15. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, August 17th. I am coming to you live from our hotel room, a makeshift CRHQ here in beautiful Wyoming, Pennsylvania, as we cover the 2021 Lotto Elite Pro Tennis Challenge, I will say on a personal note, it has been such a pleasure not to just get to hang out with the M. Key family, my adopted parents here in Wyoming, but of course to get to see the games in person of Ernest Golbis, Chris Eubanks, Ramkumar, Ramanathan, perhaps the MVP of day one, Makun Sasakumar. It's been great to get to interact with them as well. Hopefully all of you caught our media day. We sat down with each of the players competing in this week's event for about five Five to ten minutes. They'll all be individual podcasts you can listen to on our Cracked Interviews feed later on in the week, but certainly it has been an informal, relaxed event that has still seen some very serious tennis, outstanding doubles play on day one. Also got to see victories from McCoon, his third of the day. Also got a victory from Chris Eubanks in dominant fashion in our nightcap. That is not going to be the subject of today's podcast, though I will say if you want to follow all that action perhaps if there's more rain in Cincinnati and you're just looking to get your tennis fixed throughout the day come join us here in Wyoming you can follow all the action on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel shout out as always to Cracked Rackets super producer Daniel Westoff on the ones and twos you give this man a month he can make everything happen he has a live broadcast feed it is truly perhaps our most impressive accomplishment to date here at Cracked Rackets the thing I am most proud of and so much of it has to do with super producer Daniel Westoff who by the way, I should mention, is sitting in the background, so I'm hoping some of these compliments seep through his headphones, and he'll be less frustrated with having to hear my voice 24-7 over the course 
of these next few days. No break between us as we are sharing a hotel room. Some intimate details, I suppose, here. Don't worry. Two beds. Don't get weird, folks. But, of course, super producer Daniel Westoff and I on the road together once again. Always fun to get the opportunity to do that. But all of that aside, that's your intro, I suppose, hot intro there on this mini break podcast. I know it's been a couple of days since we've been on this show. Again, sincerely apologize for for that fact. I was in Kalamazoo on the grounds, got to see, you know, round of 32, round of 16, I think a little bit of quarterfinal action as well. But of course, while I do want to mention the fact, Zach Sfida, back-to-back champion, he joins Paul Goldstein, Donald Young, Jack Sock, and I believe Kevin, not Kevin King, one of the Kings, I forget which King it is, as the only two-time Boys 18s champions in the open era. Of course, there was no 2020 event. Svida would have had the chance to become the first three-times 18s winner in history, perhaps, had there been, but I'm going to save that conversation for a GSP later on, either this week or early next week, with, of course, the GOAT, the queen of all things Kalamazoo, Colette Lewis. She might be listening to this and finding out she's coming back on the pod next week. She's coming back on the pod next week. I'm also going to bring on Parenting Aces Lisa Stone, who is on scene in San Diego for Ashlyn Kruger's victory. She swept both the singles and the doubles in the girls' 18s titles, going to have two wild cards into the U.S. Open. One is impressive enough. When you can get two, you're certainly doing something right. And again, I want to talk to Lisa about that event, her takeaways as well, since she was on the ground. There's a bunch of news I may get to, but I know we've missed a lot over the past few days. So what I want to do, talk about what we've missed while we were gone, in particular the action in Canada, two 1,000-level events, two vastly different results. Of course, on the men's side, Daniil Medvedev continues to assert himself as the heir apparent, perhaps, on card courts to Novak Djokovic. You look at the tennis abstract ELO ratings with Medvedev's victory in Toronto. He's now the number one player, according to tennis abstract, via their hardcore specific ELO ratings. Now, that's wrong. We all know Djokovic at his best is still the best to be, uh, is still the guy to beat, but that the numbers reflect Medvedev's peak clearly higher than everyone else's. And on the level of Novak Djokovic, that's an informative data point, of course, and we see that unfold with our eyes as well if you watched any of the action, but just something to keep in mind. So I want to talk about his run to his fourth Masters title. I got to talk about a fellow Vildechai. Shout out to the tribe. Big win for the Jews this week in Canada as Camilla Georgie earns by far the biggest title of her career, knocking off Carolina Pliskova in the final, and I mean for Georgie. I don't know if we can induct her into Serena Williams' Power Tennis Country Club just because she won this title in Montreal, but boy, does she play explosive tennis from the baseline, and when it looks good, it looks really good really good for Camilla Georgie. So again, I know, again, long intro here, but I want to talk about all that we've missed. That includes the two 1,000-level events in Canada. I want to talk briefly about some of the things I'll be watching for this week at the Western and Southern Open. I am assuring you we are going to be mini-breaking the rest of this week. We are too close to that start of the U.S. Open to quit now, but of course, again, I want to talk about the action that happened in Canada. I want to preview this week's action in Cincinnati. 
may throw in a little talk about the action happening in Chicago this week as well. Cover the other storylines happening throughout the college, uh, college, excuse me, throughout the entire tennis world. Roger Federer, another knee surgery. Haven't mentioned that. Want to give my thoughts on that topic here today. And we're going to try and do all of that in about 30 minutes. So if you're wondering, can Alex talk this fast for the course of 30 consecutive minutes? We're going to find out that answer here on today's podcast. You may just want to listen to this one on half speed from the start. But of course, before we get into any of that, you know what I haven't gotten to do in a couple of days? Plug our friends over at Tennis Point. Honestly, I miss it. It's part of my daily habits, telling all of you listeners how exceptional the deals they offer to all of us tennis fans are, how I remind you each and every podcast that they truly provide the best equipment in the business, whatever you are looking for, clothing, rackets, strings, you name it, they've got it at the best prices. You use our promo code CR15, not only will you get 15% off your order, not only will you get free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75, but best of all, you will get a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. I can also officially confirm now, live show Friday, Cincinnati. Be there or be square. We are going to be talking quarterfinals of that Masters event. I believe I can say it with certainty. We're going to have U.S. Open Tournament Director Eric Buderak on site for a live interview. We, of course, want to meet all of you Cracked Rackets fans out there as well. It's such a pleasure for me getting to do all this traveling this summer to get to speak with so many of you. And look, it's not just going to be me. You guys are going to get to see Super Producer Daniel Westoff in person. I know a lot of you ask. I haven't told him this because, you know, I, I don't think he'll... He's, he, Here's enough of my stories, but a lot of people say when I'm on the road, tell me about Westoff. What's his deal? How does he do it? You're going to get to meet super producer Daniel Westoff in person. Yeah, you'll get to meet Dalton as well, and uh, yeah, I'll have to be on my best behavior because, of course, Dalton is going to be there, but no, I'm super excited. Our full Crack Rackets team on site in Cincinnati. You don't want to miss the live show. You don't want to miss out on the deals offered by our friends over at Tennis Point. So tennis-point, the symbol, not the spelling, dot com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, let's get into what we've missed while we were gone. Let's start with the Toronto Masters event uh, on the men's side because the the ascension of Daniil Medvedev, it was, I think we already knew. You look at the results for him. Here are his last eight results at Masters 1000 events on hard courts. It starts with that summer of 2019, and it's worth pointing out he made the final of the City Open before the Masters 1000 events uh, started in 19, but after making that final at the City Open, he then finals Canada. He lost to Rafa in the final. He wins Cincinnati. He goes on to that U.S. Open, makes the final before losing an incredible five-set match to Rafael Nadal. He then goes to Shanghai. He wins that event. Paris, second-round loss. That's the outlier because then starting post-pandemic last year, quarterfinals, lost a really strange match to Roberto Bautista Agut at the Western and Southern Open, then makes, I believe, semifinals of that 2020 U.S. Open. He goes to Paris. He wins that event. He goes to Australia at the start of this year. He makes the final of that event, quarterfinals in Miami. He now wins this uh, master. I, it's not called the Rogers Cup anymore. It's called like the National Bank Open. He wins the 1,000 level event in Toronto for his fourth Masters 1,000 title of his career. You look for Daniil Medvedev. He's competed now in five Masters 1,000 finals on hard court. That's sixth most amongst active players. You want to know who, who, or I should say tied for fifth most amongst active players. Who's ahead of him? 
Djokovic 35, Federer 34, Nadal 19, Murray 18, he and Isner both have five finals in Masters 1000s events. And you look for Daniil Medvedev, I mentioned at the top, not only is he currently ranked number two in the world, not only is he currently the number two player in overall ELO, not only is he, you know, number five in 2021 ELO, he's now the number one player in tennis abstracts, hardcourt specific ELO ratings in terms of the raw ELO score. Now you go to their more refined ELO formula, he's trailing Novak Djokovic by just six points in ELO rating. The margin between Medvedev, who's at two, and Zverev, who's at three, is 62 uh, ELO rating points. So again, it speaks to the numbers. The math is starting to look at Daniil Medvedev and saying, hey, is this guy just as good as the best of the best in Novak Djokovic on hard courts? And of course, he beat Djokovic at the 2019 Western and Southern Open, although it was a slightly banged up Djokovic. But again, I said it at the top, the answer that question probably no, but it's worth reminding all of you listeners on hard courts over these last 52 weeks. He's holding serve at a clip better than prime John Isner. You look for Medvedev again these last 52 weeks. Hard court specific results just in terms of his record overall. The guy's 45 and 8 overall. His hold percentage now 89.9%, but that's missing a couple of stats. If you look at actually more closely, he's currently at about a 93% rate. You look at his break percentage now, again, if you, it depends. I guess what I'm trying, I should have gone back and said there was a point earlier in the season when he was on his massive win streak, when and it was from, I believe, Paris of last year through the Australian Open final of this year on hard courts. And his numbers right now, 89.9 hold percentage, 28.5 break percentage. Those are both, you know, he's, I believe, fifth, oh, uh, Sixth overall in hold percentage. I want to say fifth overall in break percentage over these last 52 weeks. Uh, He's the only guy who's in the top six of both categories. And so, you know, again, that speaks to just how excellent he has been. But there was a point where he was holding serve 93% of the time. That's better than prime John Isner. There was a point where he was breaking serve more than 35% of the time. That's better than prime Rafael Nadal. I know I talked about it again, but then, but it's worth reiterating now. Don't those numbers make sense? for Daniil Medvedev. The guy's six foot freaking six, and just, again, you look at his numbers here this week, and certainly you play guys like Isner and Opelka in the semifinals and finals, you'll take it, but for the week, he won 85%, 84%, 79%, 90%, and 89% of his first serve points. Overall, for the week, he uh, he faced, I believe, let's see, 10, 15, 19 break points. He ended up saving 15 of them. You know, 15 of 19 in terms of saving break points on the week. That's special, special stuff. And look, on these courts, they were high bouncing, big kicking, big advantage to the big servers. And, you know, he knocked out a bunch of them, right? He beat Sasha Bublik, tricky three-set match in round one, then comes back, dominates the duck in James Duckworth, plays his toughest match, deals with some adversity, comes back to knock off the guy who beat him at Wimbledon, Hubie Hercots. And by the way, worth noting, yes, Hubie lost that match, but if you watched Wimbledon, you watched him compete this week. He's peaking, heading towards this U.S. Open. Absolutely a guy who can make a second week, should be expected to do so, and perhaps even a quarterfinal if the draw breaks correctly for him, just the aggression he can play with. And again, 
much like Medvedev, your modern tennis player, six foot six, dynamic from the baseline, fluid mover as well. But I mean, Medvedev showed off all the skills, and against Opelka and against Isner, what he did so well is neutralize that first serve. And just you know, if they tried serving and volleying, he's dipping that return. Even if he's six feet behind the baseline, he manages to dip that ball at their feet as they try to serve and volley. He does such a good job of absorbing and redirecting your first strike, and just you know, surviving the big hitters. And he's at his best when he's six feet behind this baseline on these hard courts and he moves the ball so round, well around the court. He moves so well for a guy his size. And then, of course, he can crank out 130 serves when he needs to. He puts a million balls in play. He's a better volleyer than his technique would suggest. Has sneaky good feel all around the court. I mean, what's left to say about Daniil Medvedev that hasn't been said already? The guy's the real deal. He's number two in the world and he deserves that ranking. You look for him overall 57-15 and 15 in his last 52 weeks. Again, that's a 79% win percentage over that stretch of time. He's won the Paris Masters title, won the ATP Tour Finals, was on the winning ATP Cup team, finals of the Australia Open. Now he's got titles in Marseille, in Mallorca, in Toronto. He he essentially held seed on his way to the quarterfinals of the French Open before being knocked off by the favored Tsitsipas. You look for Daniil Medvedev, who turns 25 or turned 25 at the start of this season, this is a player ascending into the peak of his career, and is that peak going to be like Rafa, like a Djokovic, like a Federer? Probably not. He's probably not going to get that season where he wins 90% of his matches, where he rips off eight titles and 15 finals and makes, uh, uh, you know, eight titles and 15 events and makes three other finals, because, you know, again, while he is that good on grass courts, I just don't think there's enough, or his best can be that good on a grass court. I just don't think there's enough grass court play in the season to rack up those sorts of stats, and then still remains a little bit unproven, even if this year was a step forward on clay. But you look for Daniil Medvedev, there is no denying his prowess on a hard court. I think we all agree, once Novak, you know, again, he's one of those sure things. It's going to be an Australian Open or a U.S. Open at some point in his career. Daniil Medvedev's taken a Grand Slam title on hard courts. Now, I don't know if it's going to be this season, because despite the ELO ratings, Novak Djokovic is still the guy to beat. But you look for Medvedev again. His ability to absorb, redirect that first strike of Riley Opelka, save the four break points he faced, converts three of his seven chances, created seven break point chances against both Opelka and Isner, won over 60% of his second serve points in both of those matches as well. Let's just be frank, Riley, uh, excuse me, Daniil Medvedev's the real deal. There's nothing left to say, and again, you look for him now, fourth Masters title here. He's absolutely playing some of his best ball heading into this U.S. Open. There's no reason to think he can't win Cincinnati, by the way, this week as well, and be the best player on a hard court, even though there was no Djokovic, no Federer, no Nadal, and he's the first number one seed. I don't remember who the stat comes from, so I apologize to the Tedis Twitter account. I am stealing it from, but I am stealing it from someone. He's the first number one seed at a Masters event to win the Masters event, not named Federer, Nadal, or Djokovic, since I believe Juan Carlos Ferrero in 2003. That's crazy, folks. That speaks to the dominance of the big three in that era when one of them was the number one seed. They were always the number one seeds, A, and they got the job done. But again, credit to Daniil Medvedev for breaking that streak of all the leaders of the next gen. You know, he's on that short list. Him, Zverev, Tsitsipas, those have been the three guys for quite a bit of time now. We are back in Medvedev territory on the hard courts. He gets the job done. Straight set victory over Riley Opelka to earn the title. And speaking 
of Riley Opelka, who makes his first Masters final and is up to, uh, in the rankings, I believe, a new career high of number 24 overall. Trails Isner by one spot here. Isner's number 23 in the live rankings. Opelka got up to number 23 at the start of the week now with the live, uh, you know, lost some points from last year's Western and Southern, or the 2019, I suppose, and now, again, finds himself one spot below Isner, but... I mean, you look for Riley, this is what we talked about. You can go back to the 2018 Next Gen Tears pod where I said of all of the Americans, he's the guy with the highest upside because when it looks good, it looks really freaking good. And you look for Riley Opelka right now amongst the top 50 players in the ATP. He's fourth in hold percentage. It goes, you know, Isner 1, Ranich 2, Berrettini 3, Opelka 4. He's not in the 90% club, though, yet. He's at 88.6% hold percentage over these last 52 weeks. You look for Opelka, though. He really has made strides as a returner in his break percentage over 10%. It's at 10.4 for, you know, uh, he's played 30 matches this season. That's the largest it's been over that course of a sample size. You look at just how dominant he was uh, this past week for for Opelka just across the board. He gets, you know, uh, just on serve. I believe he was broken in total on the week. I want to say four total times. Three of them were by Medvedev in the final. Excuse me, five total times. Once by Kyrgios, once by Lloyd Harris, three times by Daniil Medvedev in the final. Outside of that, he was money. And again, pitched a perfect game against Stefano Tsitsipas. Wasn't broken, saved the one break point he faced. 6-7-7-6-6-4 victory. You just shouldn't be able to move that well at that size. And I'll just say it. His backhand return, it's good. It's not good for a seven-footer. It's good. I mean, his ability to hit through that ball when he is able, because of his height, he almost bunts down on it. And in particular, when he has time to run around, slap that inside-out forehand or go big inside in, he's almost hitting down on that ball. And the way Pass was providing him heavy topspin with the heaviness, the pace of the Pass ball, that's exactly what Riley Opelka wants to be matching up with. You provide the spin, he'll provide some pace, and your spin will keep that ball down. I mean, Again, from a serving perspective, these surfaces were ideal for him. And I think there's a reason you look overall at this tournament. It was, I want to say, the tallest Masters event in terms of average semifinalist height in ATP Tour history. Of course, if you have two seven-footers in Isner and Opelka, it's always going to set the record. But I just want to point out in terms of the tallest semifinals in ATP Tour history. It was this year that, you know, 202.5 centimeters. I'm not sure what that translates to, but that's really freaking tall. That was this year in Hurting Debosh in 2017. Uh, you look at it again, Paris Masters 2016, Miami Masters 2018. A lot of these events happening over the course of the past decade speaks to, again, this evolution we see last five years, evolution, how tall you have to be. It's just going to be almost a requirement moving forward. You're going to have to be able to hit the big serve and then be that fluid on the baseline because right now that's what the best of the best on the ATP Tour can do. And again, for Riley, it's the week-in, week-out consistency. You look for him here on the season. He's still 20-20. and overall on the year, uh, over his last 52 weeks. You look for him here in 2021, 
15 and 15 overall. He got, you know, five of those wins in Toronto, four of the other wins, one, two, three, four of the other wins in Rome. So, you know, he's nine and two in Toronto and Rome, seven and 13 everywhere else. He won a couple of rounds at Roland Garros before losing first round at Wimbledon. He, you know, loses a tight match at the Australian Open. There was one point this season where Riley had lost six consecutive matches, uh, and I believe five of them were on hard courts, but he's played better tennis of late, certainly, and that first serve percentage continues to rise. You look for Opelka here this season. Uh, Overall, for Riley, really, really good year. You look, again, in terms of the overall statistics, I mentioned the fact that he improves as a returner, but I think we don't talk enough about how he's still got room to grow as a server, and you look from career high in first serve percentage, that first serve win percentage eking closer and closer to that 80% uh, percent mark firmly, but the big jump he makes is in his second serve percentage. He's winning 55.5% of those points this season. That would be a career high uh, for the sample size if extended over the course of an entire year of at least 30 matches. He played t- like 10 total matches, I guess 20 matches in 2020. Uh, but you look at it, he he won 60% of his second serve points in 2017. He was 1-8 uh, that year in ATP Tour matches. So yeah, I'm not going to call it. I'm not going to count that season. I'm not going to count that number. But for Riley, again, it's just it's not just that. It's his ability to put these returns in play. And it was the focus he played with all week long was super, super impressive. He makes his first Masters final again. We've talked about his upside forever here at Crack Rack. It's nice to see him tap into that upside over this past week in Toronto. I've spent too long on this. I'm going to go over the 30-minute mark. I do apologize. Just quickly, I know CC Paz, what he break a racket, sent a ball flying out of the crowd, whatever it may be. Get over it. These are the tw- tennis Twitter beefs. I'm very happy I got to skip out on on you know the manners lesson. And I agree. If you're going to get mad at people who crack rackets, get mad at all of them. If you're not going to get mad at people who crack rackets, then you can't be hypocritical here when one of your favorites or one of your least favorite people does it and say, "See, you know, look at this guy. His demeanor. He doesn't have it." Here at Cracked Rackets, I think our policy on cracking rackets is pretty clear, and I think our policy on showing emotion has been well documented. Show your emotion. You are out there on the court. You are the only person. That is what makes tennis tennis. Is It's an individual sport, and you're out there on an island by yourself. And so, look, you're going to become immensely frustrated at times, and there's no denying to be and beat the best of the best. You have to be able to control those emotions. You have to be able to minimize your anger, minimize those distractions, do the things, uh, you know, minimize those frustrations, and just stay focused on the task at hand, win or lose. And Tsitsipas wasn't able to do this. And guess what? He lost the match, and it's not exactly because of that. You know what else is really frustrating? When you're getting 130 miles per hour bombs hit at your weakness point after point after point, which, of course, is that Tsitsipas backhand. And credit to Riley for incorporating the serving and volleying, taking advantage of Tsitsipas' court position. But, look, it happens. Like, I'm, I'm not going to get mad over it. I'm not going to throw a fit. Yeah, I'd like his attitude to be better, but I really don't think Stefano Tsitsipas' attitude is that bad. Now, I wish he'd get vaccinated. It was definitely concerning to learn he hasn't been vaccinated yet and is only going to do it uh, if the tour mandates it because it's two pokes. And, like, then you get to do things full-time again. Don't we all want that? Isn't that what we are searching for? Even if you need a booster shot down the road, we need get the flu shot every year. Like, you got to get a new flu for the different strain of flu. None of us talk about that, or I suppose some of you do. Anyways, point being, yeah, Tsitsipas got mad on the court. Guess what? He's a 23-year-old kid. 23-year-olds get mad. Like, 
I'm over it. You should be over it as well. I spent too much time talking about it there anyways. Good semifinal result for him as he finds his legs playing his best tennis. Absolutely poised to make a run not only at the Western Southern Open, but certainly at the U.S. Open as well. And then John Isner, who's been open. I got to give him credit. He's been very open. It's just tough for him to find motivation to not play events that he thinks he can do well at because at this stage of his career, what's the point? He's won an ATP title in every season but like one or two over the past decade. He's been a top 30 guy. He's done the rat race of chasing points, chasing titles year in, year out, trying to be a top 10 guy. And he's just past that stage of his career. He's talked about how it's so much easier for him to have crowds and, you know, the motivation behind that, playing on hard courts as well. And again, I respect the candidness. Like, he's at the point of his career where he's earned that right. Really good week for Isner. Certainly, you know, the win over Monfils, the win over Rublev in particular. Green in three sets as well. It was a tricky week for Isner. Back inside the top 25. Certainly now we'll get to avoid perhaps a tough seed until that third, fourth round range. And then, of course, with his serve, it's the neutralizing element on his best days, as we saw in Toronto. He can compete with anyone. Great result for Isner. Just quickly, I know I mentioned the Hubie part earlier. Hubie, I love that upside, and it's very hot and cold with him. He wins, you know, he loses six matches in a row, then makes his first Grand Slam semifinal. Then he loses first round of the Olympics, and, you know, now he makes the quarterfinals here. Gets a withdrawal, I believe, from Nishikori in his first round match, but ultimately, I want to say in the round of 16, beat Basilashvili in three. Played a good match here. Probably should have beaten Medvedev, but should have, would have, could have. Doesn't mean much in the end. I would be scared of Hubi. I don't want to be anywhere near him come the U.S. Open. And then Casper Ruud. And it was funny because I saw people saying, and I, I'll just say it, I saw, I think it was Matt Zemek, because I agree, don't call Artifin, no more straw men here. I saw Matt Zemek, a person I respect, say, oh, you know, Casper Ruud needs to focus less on the clay in between Wimbledon and the start of the hardcourt season and just get his bearings for the hardcourt and compete with the big boys. I could not disagree more. I mean, yeah, it was an easier draw. He beat Chilich in three. He beat the Deuce in straight before losing to Tsitsipas in straight sets. But he held sir, uh, he held seed, excuse me, at a Masters 1000 event on hard courts. He made the quarterfinals before losing to the three seed. And of course, for Kasparud, quarterfinals is not the end goal. But again, he's played fewer than 60 career match, uh, you know, fewer than 50 career high level matches on hard courts on the ATP Tour level. And we're still learning about the sample size of Kasparud on this surface. And for him to just hold seed, take that, you know, 15 match win streak or 12 match win streak, whatever it was during the clay court season run with it here into this hardcourt event and hold seed that's a huge positive for Kasparud I have no negative spin to that and I think if you do you're really stretching yourself and I know saying he doesn't need to focus on the clay courts anymore isn't exactly criticism but like he's now number 12 in the world and he won three consecutive titles and you want to tell me that's a bad I don't even know if Matt's saying that was a bad decision But it wasn't. He was chasing points at a time when they were available to him. And of course, long term, it's more important. We know what he is on a clay court. It's more important for him to prove himself on those hard courts. But guess what? There just aren't that many tournaments available in between Wimbledon and the start of the American hard court season. And he wanted to go play matches. And he chased those points. And it was a success for him. And if that's something that he's most comfortable doing, I guess we got to see how he does here in Cincinnati in the U.S. Open. But a quarterfinal, like. 
Way to go, Cal. I think that's a step forward. I actually think that's progress. Beating who you're supposed to beat isn't easy, and he managed to do it here. That's my thoughts, again, on the quarterfinalists. There are a bunch of round of 16, you know, notable players. Monfils playing better tennis was certainly a big deal. Roberto Bautista Agut starting to play a little bit better as well. You also saw Lloyd Harris in the round of 16. But I think Hatchinov starting to play better as well, but... You know, again, overall, it was a super interesting event in Toronto. It is crazy to feel, you know, think how open these fields are, at least up until those semifinal final rounds without the big three. But, of course, Medvedev's able to get over the finish line, and I think that's a result all of us, if not could have anticipated, is certainly a result we are comfortable with seeing. That's what happened on the men's side in Toronto. Now, of course, again, uh, just some other quick takeaways. 10 different Masters 1000 finalists in our five Masters 1000 events here in 2021. It's worth noting all the, you know, Nadal and Djokovic in Rome. Those are your only guys who wouldn't have qualified for the initial next-gen ATP event that was held in, what, 2017. It's Medvedev, Opelka, Berrettini, Zverev, Rublev, Tsitsipas, Sinner, Hercots. Those are your eight other finalists, all next geners, all guys we've talked about extensively here. But the next gen's here, folks, and I know we need to see it happen at the slams, but it's happening everywhere else. It's inevitable at the slams, and you know, you can say, no duh, I'm trying not to swear here to make this easier. No S, Alex. Of course, eventually the big three are gonna go away, but they're going away now, at least in the week in, week out grind, and certainly it's the next geners that seem to be thriving. Also worth noting with Riley Opelka making the quarterfinals and further here, since Roland Garros have ended, fifteen, you heard me correctly. 15 different American men have reached ATP quarterfinals, and six different Americans have reached semifinals in just the last three weeks. There is ridiculous depth in American men's tennis right now. And is there a sure thing? No. We don't have a center. We don't have an FAA. We don't have a Zverev, a Tsitsipas, or a Medvedev. Court is not quite there yet. Brooksby and Nakashima are fascinating. The OG next geners, Fritz, Opelka, Paul, Tiafo, they're playing better tennis. Mackey's a 95er. He's playing really well, and I still think we're going to get five, say three to five really good years left, at least from Dennis Kudla, who you know has talked about finding his motivation, playing his best tennis here this season. Only 28 years old, got plenty of prime left in him, but that's really, really good. And especially given the dearth of results throughout much of 2010s, the dearth of talent, the existential is American men's tennis dead moving forward. We have a little revival here, and the 2020s, in my opinion, should certainly be interesting. But again, that's another storyline, and those are really your storylines from the men's side of this 1,000-level uh, event in Canada. Now, on the women's side, and I don't think I'm going to do 20 minutes on this, mostly because it's already 11.44 here, and I see Westoff turning over, and I agree. we got to hit the Zs as we've got an early morning here of matches, but how about Camilla Georgie racing? to her first 1,000-level title. You look for Georgie. She had won two previous titles in her career. She won in Hertingenbosch, double uh, Hertingenbosch. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation. Name drops, though, here. In 2015, she had also won Linz. In 2018, you look for her. Her last final came early in the 2019 season. But, I mean, what a run of matches for Camilla Georgie here. She knocks off Mertens. Paroska, Kvitova, Goff, Pagula, and Karolina Pliskova in the final to earn the Montreal title. Just 
so freaking explosive from the baseline. Forehand wing, backhand wing. It doesn't matter. She's got all of the goods and you know, again, I don't think anyone who's watched Georgie play who, you know, turns 30 years old this year. Camilla Georgie is 30. That thought is crazy to me. But, you know, for Georgie, who now, with this victory, goes skyrocketing up the rankings, goes from number 71 overall up to number 34, which is eight off her career high of 26. You look at her now in terms of the race to the year-end final, Georgie up to number 23 in that race, she's 24 and 16 overall in her last 52 weeks, 22 and 12 overall here in 2021. You look at the run she's made of late quarterfinals of the Olympics where she beat Brady, she beat Pliskova, she ends up losing to Alina Svitolina again in the quarterfinals, but in Eastbourne, she comes through qualifying with wins over Lynette. And Tom Janovic then three sets over Pliskova, over Rogers, over Sabalenka before having to retire against Annette Conteve. Even her losses of late, second round loss to Mukova at Wimbledon was a three set loss. And just she's starting to play her best tennis here. And there's a confidence she's exuding right now on court. And that confidence is essential to Georgie's being because she plays such thin margins, such high risk, high variance tennis. But when she's swinging freely from the baseline, it is a sight to behold, and quite frankly, she hit through Pliskova, and we all know when Pliskova's in the center of the court, I'm stealing your line, Alex Banchilla, she looks like Juan Martín Del Potro. When she's got time and can make clean contact with the ball, one of the purest ball strikers, if not the purest ball striker, on the WTA Tour, but Georgie just wasn't giving her time. She was taking the return early. She was blasting away whenever she was in the center of the court in these baseline rallies. And again, she was just excellent. She outhit Pliskova in the final. I think for Georgie, perhaps most impressive was just how physical she made that match against Pagula. And when Pagula started making her comeback in that second set, Georgie didn't go away as she sometimes has in the past. And she didn't get frustrated and start overswinging or any of those streak of errors. No, she calmed, you know, she stayed poised. She refocused. She made that third set physical, came out swinging, but with a little bit more margin. She ends up earning the victory. And again, watching her pace overwhelm the Coco Golf forehand, watching her go strike for strike with Petra freaking Kvitova in the round of 16 in Montreal, it was incredible tennis. And again, it's, it's the best week of tennis we've seen from Camilla Georgina. Now you look for her in her career at the U.S. Open. Overall, the success that she has had. The best she's ever done, round of 16, 2013, where she lost to Roberta Vinci. You look for her last year was a second round loss to Naomi Osaka. The two years prior to that, losses to 30 seed Maria Sakkari, lost to 16 seed Venus Williams. Actually her last 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 losses at the U.S. Open have each been two seeded players, but you look for her now, currently ranked number 34 overall, depending on the withdrawals we see, withdrawals, excuse me, we see at the U.S. Open. If hopefully Anastasia Pavchenkova how she didn't get her visa yet to come over to the United States, how she's not allowed to play the Western Southern Open, an absolute joke. Um, but, you know, again, you look, should we see any withdrawals if, you know, Serena, who we haven't just seen play in a while, doesn't end up playing. Kiki Burton's, who is retired, she's ranked a high uh, above, excuse me, uh, right now, number 34, Camilla Georgie. Georgie could be seated at this U.S. Open. And if she's seated and plays her best tennis, I want no part of her in my section of the draw 
best week of her career. Again, do we induct her into Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club off of one exceptional week? She's always had that firepower, but I need to see a little bit more. We need a little bit more well-rounded. Again, a, a fantastic week at age 29. It speaks to how open the tour is right now that a week like this from Georgie and the runs we've seen from Pepla-Chinkova, uh, obviously at the French Open, and just all of these different breakthroughs for players 28, 8, 9, 30 years old who perhaps didn't have those breakthroughs throughout the prime of Serena's career where there was just this dominant figure who, when she played her early, there were no upsets. She just straight up beat you. That's not the case right now. Upsets are possible, you know, while the top five, it may be as not as high and dominant of a level as before. The level of a top 30 player right now in the WTA Tour, in my opinion, is higher than it has ever been. Camila Georgie proves that fact. She ends up earning the title this week over Carolina Pliskova. And you look for Pliskova now over these last 52 weeks. She's up to 33-19, and 19, obviously final of Wimbledon then consecutive losses to Georgie in Tokyo and Montreal. She's refound her rhythm, which is all you can ask for. She's back inside the top 10 of the WTA rankings, or excuse me, Pliskova, yeah, back inside the top 10, all the way back up to number four. You look for her in the race to the year-end final. She's number four there as well. Makes sense. I mean, again, the moment pressure's off of Carolina Pliskova, she starts putting forward some of the best results of her career once more. That's just... It's beautiful poetry here, and again, it sucks that in the final, it felt like this was such a nice and clear-cut opportunity for her. She didn't play her best tennis, but I think a lot of that had to do with just Georgie. That's a tough matchup when Georgie's clicking while she does have the firepower to make Pliskova uncomfortable, and I thought Pliskova moved really, really well earlier in the tournament in the victory she got over Arena Sabalenka, in the victory she got over Cerebez Tormo, over Anisa Mova as well, and certainly Sabalenka and Anisimova have the sort of weapons to make you uncomfortable. But look, Pliskova's back. She's serving well. Again, getting that first serve percentage closer to the over 60% mark to where that is a dominant figure and a dominant first serve. But again, just didn't quite have enough in the end. Gets knocked off uh, by Camille uh, LeGeorgie ultimately in, again, the final round. Now, you continue to look semifinals. Sabalenka, number one seed. I thought she did an excellent job holding seed. And she just didn't play her best against Pliskova. But to beat Vika to beat Sloan in three sets in that first-round match after the long layoff. I just thought, you know, again, I thought it was a good first hardcore performance back for Sabalenka. I thought, you know, for Jess Pegula, what a run she went on. Listen to this gauntlet. Kontave, Pavlichenkova, Collins, Jabour. She wins all of those matches in three sets before getting knocked out in three by Georgie. I, I mentioned this earlier, but she's like, I think it's like 28 and 8 now in hardcore events and has made quarterfinals at like five of the eight of them. It's ridiculous stuff. That's a stud. That is someone who is playing their best tennis at this point of their career. You look for Jess Pegula now, currently up to number 26 in the rankings. That's one off her career high of number 25. You look for her in the race to the year-end finals. Jess Pegula, 13th. She's been a top 20 player. Like, I think that number's more accurate, especially on hard court. She's going to be a popular dark horse pick to have success at the U.S. Open. But Crack Rackets fans are going to know she's not a dark horse. She's just legitimately that good and can absolutely make noise as we approach New York. You look again, quarterfinals. Coco Goff has established herself as a top 20 player. I think she's established herself perhaps even better than that. And you look at the ELO ratings right now for Coco Goff in terms of overall ELO. She's up to number 8. 2021 specific ELO right now has Coco Golf all the way up 
<coughs> excuse me, to number nine, 29 and 12 here on the season. Yeah, if you're not on the golf bandwagon, what have you been watching the last three years? She gets better and better, and you can just tell physically she takes another step after another step, and it takes a performance like Georgie now to overpower that forehand, but that she still can get overpowered on that wing, I think, speaks to her upside moving forward. I'm in on the golf bandwagon. You should be as well. It was a really good week for her. And you look at your other quarterfinalists. Good results for Vika, who was a little bit banged up when she played the EXO at the City Open to make the quarters to beat Kirstey and Sakari. That's good tennis from her. Own Shabur, another one of the breakthrough players of this 2021 season. That breakthrough started at the start of 2020, but it's carried over here into this year. She's just legit top 25, top 20 on her best days, top 15 and 10 material. Uh, it was a really fun match with Pagula, but Pagula ultimately getting the better of her in the end. Uh, again, again, those are your quarter finalists. Those are your takeaways. It's the wild, wild west. It's a wide open WTA event. Of course, this feels like a good way to segue into our Western and Southern Open conversation. We'll start with the women because the biggest thing heading into the Western and Southern Open in Cincinnati, we get the return of our top two players in the world. Number one seed, Ashley Barty. Number two seed, Naomi Osaka making their returns to competitive action. Barty's going to take on the winner of two qualifiers. Naomi Osaka, potentially very fascinating first round match with a young woman by the name of Coco Golf, or I should say second round match, but first match of the event. And look, I wasn't in the press room where whatever happened today where someone asked Osaka, but I take Ben's word. Again, Ben is on the grounds and Ben's been on the Osaka beat since they're since before there was in Osaka B, and it's just, again, go listen to it for yourself. You can make your own judgments. I haven't, you know, really dove in and figured out the whole scenario yet, so I owe you all a little bit further uh, thoughts on that, but of course, it's just so great to see Osaka back in the drawback competing. Hopefully, we get to see her best tennis here down the home stretch of 2021. Of course, again, Last time we saw Ashley Barty, I know she was at the Olympics, but last time we saw her competing on the WTA Tour, uh, she was winning Wimbledon. And, you know, obviously for her to solidify her number one rankings with that second Grand Slam title and just you look at her results, I think she's number two in hardcourt ELO rating behind Naomi Osaka. She's number one overall in 2021, brings a 34-5 and record into this event. We know her variety. We know she's someone, you know, that athleticism she can match up and be, we know how good Ashley Barty is certainly. So it'll be interesting to see her return to play. Of course, I want to see if Garbine Muguruza, tricky first round match. She lost to Sinyakova in Toronto. I said there was going to be a Garbine Muguruza Grand Slam title in 2021. I I think I have to stick with the take at this point. And we've only got one slam left, so I would love to see her build some momentum here at the Western Southern Open. Of course, going to be nice to see all of these familiar faces. And just these first-round matches, let me just read them for you, some of the interesting ones. Krejcikova versus Kasekina. I think Kasekina has made four finals this year. Obviously, Krejcikova, Grand Slam champion, has been probably the most improved. I mean, she's going to win most improved award here at the uh, in this 2021 season. But that's ridiculous. Sakari versus Kerber. Alexandrova versus Brady's kind of nuts. Kvitova Keys, Ostapenko, Zidanezic. I mean, I can go up and down the list if you'd like. Mertens, Podoroska, super, super fun. Bencic, Vandrusova, gold medal rematch. Uh, just up and down the board. I mean, Bedosa, Martic today. I think Martic, uh, Bedosa ended up fighting off five match points, winning 7-6 in the third. Jabour versus Kontave with the winner playing Iga Sviantek. It's a joke. 
it's an absolute joke speaks to the depth right now in the women's game and you know masters event you only get the best of the best so definitely looking forward to watching the women's event unfold on the men's side again no Djokovic no Nadal no Federer is number one seed Daniil Medvedev once again now we do have the return of gold medalist Alex Virev in this draw he'll take on Lloyd Harris in his first match you do have number two seed Stefano Tsitsipas your number four seed here in this event Andre Rublev and again Feels like we've got a bunch of next geners here on the scene. We had birthday boy Yannick Sinner, 6275 win over Federico Del Bonis. FAA comes back from a breakdown in the first 7663 victory over Fusevic. Alex Diemenauer lost another bagel set. There was a point where he had won one game, I believe, in his past 22 on tour, but comes back for a love 6 6464 win over Philip Krajinovic, of course elsewhere in terms of the results we've seen unfold thus far. Another birthday boy, Diego Schwartzman. Testy, competitive, but ultimately fantastic match. Great victory over Dan Evans in three sets. No, I didn't forget about the Andy Murray beat. Andy Murray, 6-4-6-4 win over Richard Gasquet. Wasn't his prettiest tennis, but did well enough to get the job done. Also had wins from Harris, Fonini, our boy Dom Kopfer, a German on German crime. He knocks off Struff 6-3 in the third. Again, the moment you think Mumir Kesmanovic is about to go on a breakthrough, go on a big run, he loses a match in three sets to Benoit Pair. And then Albert ramos Vinoles knocking off Taylor Fritz in three sets. Fritz had a couple of injury in- issues of late, but... You know, that's a match he's got to win. And so credit to Ramos Vanolas gets the job done in that one. Again, overall, which of these next geners can step up? And, you know, Nakashima versus Mackie McDonald, Garone versus Bublik, Dimitrov versus Bautista Agut, Hercots versus Davidovich Fokina. I mean, Isner Nori should be super, super fun. Tiafo versus Umber. The contrast between Opelka and his uh, and Quarantine Mute in round one. Sonego. Alcaraz and Tommy Paul Christine Garin. It's a Masters 1000 event, folks. If you can't get amped for that, if you can't enjoy that as a tennis fan, I don't know what to tell you. So certainly, again, that should be super, super fun. And by the way, we've also got action this week in Chicago, the 125 event happening there. There's also another Chicago event happening next week, but you look at the results today. Wins from Americans Claire Liu and Lee. Got a big win from Kalinskaya over Kalnina, Garacheva, and Irani. Your other players to advance. We've got plenty of tennis for you happening across the globe day in, day out, 24-7 here this week. Of course, quickly some of the other storylines, and then we're going to wrap today's show, I promise, Westoff. Westoff, by the way, you want to give me a Western Southern Open prediction? Who's winning the men's title? Anyone? Headphones are on. Hopefully he's asleep. Okay, that's my bad. No Westoff. I'm going to say he would predict Medvedev for the men, and then he'd say you're going to pick Sabalenka, Alex, for the women, so he's going to go different. If I told him Barty's – oh, I told him Osaka's in the draw. I think he'd go Barty to my Osaka. So I'll give him Barty. I'm going to project these picks onto him. I'll ask him in the morning. I'm going to say he's picking Barty. I'll take – or he'll take Osaka. I'll take Barty. Actually, I'm going to take Muguruza for the women. Let's be creative here this week. And then on the men's side, I mean, I'm not happy to pick it. (sighs) So don't even legitimize it. Don't say his name. But it's disingenuous to just say Alex Virev does not exist if he's going to be competing in these events. And objectively, I just think his tennis is better than everyone else's right now. You saw the same Olympics that I did. It's a tired Daniil Medvedev as well, a worn-down Tsitsipas. Give me Zverev to win this week on the men's side. 
I know he's traditionally not had the most success in Cincinnati, but I just think it's going to be his week. And, you know, again, I'll save those thoughts, I suppose, for a little bit later. But, you know, again, shout out to Zach Svida. He becomes one of, uh, I believe I mentioned it, it's King, Sock, Donald Young, Goldstein, and him, one of five players to win back-to-back Boys 18's titles in Kalamazoo. Shout out, of course, to Ashlyn Kruger as well for her victory in San Diego. Podcast with Colette and Lisa Stone later on this week, so be on the lookout for them, of course. Worth noting, Mackie McDonald accepted into the main draw of the U.S. Open after Borna George and Roger Federer pull out of the event. Next in on the entry list, Dennis Kudla. Why is that important? The USDA gets eight wild cards for the main draw. Riffis, guaranteed one as the American NCAA champ. Sfida, Kalamazoo champion, guaranteed. I would bet every penny I will ever make, ever bet the house, bet the store, bet the company that Nakashima and Brooksby get two of those wild cards as at the time of the entry list, their ranking was too low to get in on their own. That's four. Now, if Kudla doesn't get in on his ranking, he'll be five for sure as he's the highest ranked American not to get in on his own ranking, but let's assume he gets in because he only needs one more withdrawal. You've got four guys, Americans, with challenger titles here for four spots. Sock, Fratangelo, Kruger, and Eubanks. Now, of course, there's a lot of Max Cressy love. J.J. Wolf, certainly in the mix, has had a bunch of injuries here this year, but if you've seen him play, you know his level is improving. There's a ton of other USTA guys. You know, if Blumberg doesn't get a qualifying wild card, I'll lose my freaking mind because that's just a gimme. That's a layup to promote college tennis. That's a layup, USTA. Get Blumberg a wild card. I know I'm biased there, and I know you can never say someone deserves a wild card, but if you're promoting the sport, you're trying to help your best rise to the top with these wild cards. That's what you're doing by giving one to Will. But, you know, you look at those four spots, give them to the four challenger champions. Like, that works for me. I don't think you can complain. On the merits, that sounds pretty good. Now, Cressy in the mix, I understand, because he's, I think, the highest-ranked other player to not get one. But, I mean, come on. What are we doing here? Let's let, let's be clear. I would go, you know, those are my four. I think it's pretty straightforward for Tangelo, Kruger, Sock, Eubanks. They've won challenger titles. Give them a wild card. I don't think anyone come. I mean, someone will be upset, but I don't think, I think tennis Twitter and tennis intelligentsia at large would understand those picks. And then last but not least, Roger Federer, another knee surgery. His quote, I've been doing a lot of checks with my doctors on my knee. I hurt myself further during the grass season. That's just not the way to go forward. They told me to feel better that I'll need surgery. I decided to do it. It's another knee surgery for Roger. And look, 40 years old, the emotion in the video where he was sharing his decision, he is very aware. His tennis mortality is very much in front of him. At the same time, we got essentially two decades unimpeded by injury from Roger Federer. I hope we're going to be able to get to say that moving forward. Sincerely, I hope you know we get to see Federer get the farewell tour, get the you know that he deserves, and get to go out on his own terms. But if you're asking me, you know he's 40 years old. I think a bit of this could have been expected. It was always going to come, and we got two decades of him fighting off mother, you know, father time, fighting off the inevitabilities for every professional athlete. But that inevitability have come, has come, and he's 40 years old, and that's okay. Like, I th- of course, it's a sad day when r- tennis loses Roger Federer, but it's a day we have all been preparing for. Hopefully, again, sucks absolutely sucks that an athlete of his standard, his quality, may not have the opportunity to go on on his own terms, but never say never. 
keep your Roger Federer belief alive, much like you should keep your belief alive that we are going to go every day here this week, uh, the rest of this week, and throughout this 2021 Western and Southern Open. Again, live show Friday with our friends at Tennis Point. You don't want to miss it. If you're there, feel free to DM us at Cracked Rackets, at Great Shot Pod for more information. Super excited for that event and so much more. So, of course, again, to learn everything we're doing, we're here in Wyoming for this uh why I'm missing Lotto Elite uh, Pro Tennis Challenge. Certainly excited to cover the rest of those matches day in, day out. And, you know, again, to follow all of our coverage, you know where to go. Websites, CrackedRackets.com. If you missed any of our interviews from Kalamazoo, we've got a couple more in the queue as well, but you'll be able to find all of them on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed. Great Shot podcast going to rock and roll soon as well, so be on the lookout for all of that. And as always, if you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, or at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me directly, I'm at Great Shot. Pod. A shout out as always to our super producers Max Ligner and Daniel Westoff for the <laughs> of an ending job they do day in day out. A shout out as well to our friends over at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 with that in mind for our wonderful super producers Fliegner and Westoff, our friends over at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. We'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks everyone.